Welcome back, everybody. It's time once again to Finding Your Soul and Success, where leaders share their inspirational wisdom and stories with our friend Kathy Gardarian. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Kathy Gardarian, and today I'm so delighted to be with my friend and cohort in business, um, at least we do some things together, it's Dr. Amir Raz. He's a leading cognitive neuroscientist and educator. He received a PhD in brain science and neuropsychology from the Center for Computational Neuroscience at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He later went on to a postdoctoral fellowship at the Weill Medical College at Cornell University. He was also on the faculty of Columbia University as well as the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Today, Dr. Roz is a professor of psychiatry, neurology, neurosurgery, and psychology at McGill University in Montreal. He is also the founding director of the Brain Institute at Chapman University. Now, but before Dr. Roz became an accomplished neuroscientist and educator, he was first known as a professional magician and entertainer. Now, I, I really want you to tell me a little bit more about how you started doing that. And also, you call, you, what you call magic and deception in science. Sure. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for this kind and generous introduction, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I am, um, you know, I have to remind myself every now and then um, that I'm a magician because um, I visit uh, Magic Castle in L.A. now a lot more than I have in my entire life because I was on the East Coast before. And uh, now that I'm on the West Coast, Magic Castle is like the mecca of magicians it's in la it's It's, so much fun it is a lot of fun and it's a major major hub uh for magicians and every time i go there i meet old friends and 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 things like that and it's really interesting these silos of magic and science because they usually don't intersect you have very few magicians who are scientists and very few scientists who are magicians and people always ask me are you the best magician among the scientists or are you the best scientist (laughs) among the magicians? And, you know, my canned answer is uh, I'm neither one. Uh, I'm neither uh, the the best magician among the scientists or the best scientist among the magicians because I don't think that there is such a thing. It's not a competition, really, but there's something Mm -hmm. really interesting about the question that you posed. Uh, What does it mean to be a magician um, and deception and, and to do science? And the reason that it's interesting is because In general, we think, what do we think about magicians? What's the stigma that is usually, or the aura that goes with, or the connotation that goes with magicians? It's usually somebody who's a snake in the grass, like a deceptive trickster, somebody who's willing to sell, you know, his dear ones for for an effect. Uh, Somebody who's uh, sort of very much into, um, you know, the audience applauding at all costs kind of thing with uh, all kinds of uh, back doors and trap doors and, and, you know, gaffed uh, props and stuff like that. What is a scientist? It's the antithesis of that, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, a, a scientist needs to be a, a, like an, you know, uh, some kind of a dignified, honest, uh, you know, upstanding member of society. Somebody who's uh, intelligent and honest and forthcoming and transparent, almost like the diametrical opposition of, of a magician. Well, I'm both. 
and uh, and and I'm sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, in, in you know, in one person. And it's very interesting because when I do science, I make sure that I do science according to scientific paradigms and and you know norms of behavior and so on. And when I'm a magician, I allow myself to get into mag- magical behavior, which includes deception and so on. And there's a gray zone. There's a twilight zone in mm-hmm. between them because in science, you can actually sometimes, with permission, use deception. Deception is not all bad. And part of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to demonstrate, for example, in my psychological experiments, in my neuroscientific experiments, that we have a lot to learn from what deception does to the human brain or to the human mind. Mm-hmm. Because in our life, and as we navigate life, uh, we deal with a lot of deception. Some of the deception comes from our peers. Some of the deception mm-hmm. comes from you know uh, things that happen in our work environment, in our social dynamic. Deception is part of life. So to ignore it and to say, oh, people are not deceptive, or we never have to deal with trickery, with subterfuge, with you know, things that have to do with um, people masquerading as something that they're not and so on, yeah. that doesn't work. I mean, so so yeah. learning about what deception is, how does the brain deal with deception, what can deception teach us and so on, is a very interesting part of um, what we are trying to do, among other things, uh, at the Brain Institute that I'm directing uh, at Chapman University. And in many ways, I've been doing this for decades Um, The interesting thing about science is that most scientists feel or they stop a little bit shy of asking these questions because they don't know too much about deception. They don't know too much about subterfuge, about, you know, taking concepts that have been entrenched for, if not thousands of years, then hundreds of years um, with very clear principles from magic. And how do we study them in the lab? And I actually do these things. Wow. So what does it really take to be a brain scientist? And, and you do so many different areas of it. It's- right. So uh, the, you know, the brain science, the, the, the field of brain science or neuroscience, as some people like to call it, mm-hmm. is a very vast field. It's a little bit like um, uh, when you let's say that, you know, you meet someone and you know that they are, they are uh, let's say, a cancer researcher or something. There is not one thing that is called cancer. It's like cancer is a very vast field with many kinds of cancer, many different, uh, you know, um, uh, techniques. And, and, and even the science, it, it changes depending on what you're t- talking about. The same thing is with, with uh, brain science and neuroscience. There's not one animal that is called a brain scientist. There, brain science is a huge, vast field, and you can approach it from a computational standpoint, from a clinical standpoint. You can be a neurologist. You can be a psychiatrist. You can be, you can be a neuroradiologist. You can be an ophthalmologist. You can be a dermatologist. This is just from the clinical side. You can also be an electrophysiologist. You can be a psychologist. You can be somebody who comes from computer science and from physics. If you're doing you know, computational models, you can come from cellular and molecular biology, from anatomy. It's a very, very large field. Some people are getting into brain science from anthropology, from the social sciences, wow. from sociology. So brain science has become this huge umbrella that encompasses many, many disciplines. And what is common to all of them is the interest in trying to study the brain and what the brain does is the organ of behavior and something that has to do with our core values as humans. I mean, we have recognized over the years 
that you do not find your humanity in your liver or in your kidneys, not in your spleen and not mm. in even in your heart, although these are, this is the, the, the language that we often find in poetry and, yes. and so on, mm. but um, also in scripture. But we, we actually are humans because of our brains. This is really something that cognitively, emotionally guides our thoughts and our actions. So how did you get interested in this when you were young and... You know what? What drew you to this? Many, in many ways, and I think many roads that I took um, led to the brain, um, among other things. So, so some of it is serendipitous, right? Some of it yeah. is just sort of by fluke, luck, whatever you want, randomness, whatever you want to call it. Just somebody who's navigating the paths of life and and sort of finding things and meeting people and reading books and so on. So there's certainly uh, you know an element of that, but. The volitional element, the element that came from me, actually has to do with magic. So when I was a young magician, when I was going to the public library reading about coins and handkerchiefs and, you know, all these things Mm -hmm. that kids do when they're they're young, I uh, encountered a group of magicians, teenage magicians, who were doing hypnosis shows. And it was very interesting for me to see how these guys who knew absolutely nothing about hypnosis, and I knew that they knew nothing about hypnosis because I, I would speak to them, you know, when we were playing soccer together and when we were, you know, sort of, you know, doing what teenagers do, uh, um, you know, uh, after school. I knew that they had little to no knowledge of what hypnosis even was, yet they were able to stand in front of audiences and hypnotize people who were sometimes decades older than they yeah, were. Really? And I was fascinated by that. And, and, and I asked them, you know, how, do you, how did you learn this? What did you read? What did you, and they, sh- they referred me to some kind of a 12-page red booklet that they got at the local magic store. And it was just patter. It was just text that they learned by heart. It was some kind of a script that you can recite by heart and people would sort of fall into it. And I was fascinated with the fact that you can even theoretically be able to utter or just articulate particular sentences or act in a certain way with some some kind of a theatrical persona. And people would actually follow you to the point that they would be hypnotized or act like they're hypnotized. So I started looking into it more and more. And I started, you know, studying psychology and things like that. And all roads led to the brain. Mm. Wow. Pretty interesting. So this difference between being a brain scientist and a PhD and the medical world, how is that coming together for you? And what are some of the issues? I think that's a very deep question. Like most of your oh. questions, you, you phrase it you know, in a, in a very light way, but it, it, it yeah. actually, it's a very heavy question and a very good one. Um, A PhD, uh, depending on the subject, a PhD is usually a person who uh, trained to be a scientist or a researcher, uh, somebody who's trained to do science, somebody who's trained to do research, to do a systematic study of something. An MD uh, is usually somebody who trained to be a physician, a clinician, somebody who's certified to practice medicine. Now, we have a few variations in the United States. Sometimes you can be a DO, not just an MD. And sometimes you don't have to be a PhD. You can have similar degrees like a DSC or something like that. But at the end of the day, um, I was, for example, for most of my professional life, a PhD in an MD environment. I was a PhD inside of, at first it was Cornell Medical School, then it was Columbia Medical School, then it was McGill Medical School. But it's very strange to be 
sort of a non-clinician or a scientist or mm. a researcher in, a, in an environment that is mostly medical or clinical, where practitioners are trying to give treatments to patients who need their help. And almost by and large, although it's not something that people speak about very much, PhDs are sort of second-class citizens in medical schools. Mm-hmm. And that's because they don't have clinical privileges and they cannot prescribe medications and so on. This is not true universally, but I would say that, you know, this is the trend and it's more than a trend at certain places. Now, there is an animal that is called an MD-PhD, which is a person who sort of does both. But MD-PhD programs are heavy on the MD and very light on the PhD in general. You can also be um, like an MD, like a, a, a somebody who's trained to be an MD only, but an excellent researcher. And sometimes you can be a PhD and an excellent clinician, but the, the fact that you're a PhD and an excellent clinician does not give you the privileges or the, um, I would say, the certification to practice medicine. So all these things sometimes can be very tenuous. I think that the public is sometimes confused by these things. It's yeah. not quite clear, especially when people say, I'm Dr. Raz, and, and it's not clear what that means even. Sure. Um, there was a movement afoot a few years ago, certainly in Canada, I think in the United States as well, that PhDs or uh, people who are doing research should wear red um, uh, white coats and, and to, to distinguish them from the, from the MDs or, or the clinicians who would be wearing white uh, coats and so on, and I think that that fell through. There's definitely there's definitely a very long history to this. Sure. So did you feel less than at times, or you know, I never did. I think a lot of it is um, your personality. A lot of it is your um, your own self confidence and your assurance. I think a lot of it is also, in addition to your personality, in addition to your self confidence, in addition to in addition to parameters that have to do with your car, uh, your, your core constituency, yeah. it has also to do with the environment that you're in. I think I was very lucky and privileged to be in very strong research environments. Uh, if it's Cornell, if it's Columbia, I was uh, for a time I was at the uh, University of British Columbia. I was visiting at uh, different universities, and I always felt that I was uh, you know treated very well and um, and equally. Uh, together with my um, uh, clinical peers. Uh, degrees never meant anything to me. They still don't. Uh, I really uh, judge people you know, by who they are and what they do, what they say, and, and the, the way that they behave. I don't judge them by, by their academic degrees or lack thereof. Uh, I think that's good. Um, so what is um, the next big thing that's happening in neuroscience, and how should we think about it? Right. So I think if you asked, you know, five different neuroscientists, what is the next big thing? You will probably get uh, 54 different answers, uh, depending, you know, on on their their inclinations and their uh, particular training and their thinking. Um, I'm happy to share with you my own. Um, And I think that um, whatever I'm going to tell you um, in the next few seconds is going to be something that... um, Certainly, a lot of my peers would line up with. Uh, it's, it doesn't represent just my thinking. It probably represents, uh, you know, a small group of of people who think like me. It doesn't mean that we're right, but it means that you know that's that's what mm. we're thinking. So, one of the big, um, uh, you know, next big thing in in neuroscience would be uh, psychedelic drugs. For example, psychedelic mm. drugs are making a big comeback uh, to the clinical scene. We are beginning to see um, a lot of interest and a lot of activity, scientific activity, medical activity, 
around drugs that we have already forgotten about or we have sort of stashed away mm. uh, because of all kinds of cultural baggage and all kinds of legal issues and stuff like that. So hallucinogenics like LSD and psilocybin, which are considered, you know, magic mushrooms and uh, peyote and ayahuasca and all these names that some people don't recognize and some people do recognize. These are mm -hmm. psychoactive materials that people have taken for thousands of years, really, but in the United States and certainly um, in the West, I would say, uh, those were largely banned uh, sometime around the 50s, 60s, depending on exactly what, what was going on in the United States. The Vietnam War and, you know, the whole hippie movement and peace and stuff like that is very familiar to a lot of people, particularly in Southern California. Uh, this has been going on for a while. And as a result of that, Some of these drugs have been stigmatized and criminalized and they sort of fell out of favor. Clinicians stopped using them. People were you're not even allowed to possess them. They're, they're considered schedule one drugs. You're not you mm. cannot you cannot even be around them. It's so dangerous because the police mm. are you know very strict about these things. Today, there is a movement afoot to decriminalize these drugs. Uh, people are beginning to use them uh, either as citizen science. People are beginning to grow them in their closets. You can buy on Amazon. You can buy spore kits with these things. Um, it's there. There's some kind of an underground movement um, where the authorities are sort of giving it the blind eye. They know that it's going on and they're sort of giving it the blind eye. And the reason is that we are beginning to get we're we're getting to a point where we're beginning to get disillusioned with some of the mainstay drugs or I you know I maybe I should call them backbone drugs that we've been using for example in psychiatry if you're if we're looking at let's say antidepressants yeah. uh, antidepressants have been with us for a few decades and they haven't delivered they they're they're not actually relieving depression in the way that we were promised they're not actually doing what we hoped or what we had hoped that they would do as a result of this disillusionment or disenchantment whatever you want to call it with let's say antidepressants, You are beginning to see some promising results with drugs like psychedelics, and the combination of the two is fueling um, investors and uh, donors and philanthropic organizations, and um, you know even uh, companies that are being you know traded on Nasdaq and, and 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 IPOs and stuff like that to come out, and and a lot of money is being poured into startup companies. What does it really do to the brain? That Depending on the material and the dosage, um, um, all kinds of things um, are happening, and we're trying to um, we're trying to understand what it does to the brain. It really is a field that is, relatively speaking, virgin territory, and the reason it's virgin territory is because when it was a little bit more in the news, let's say in the '60s. We didn't have the equipment, the technology, the knowledge of the brain that we have today. Mm -hmm. So many of the accounts of people who were um, um, taking uh, psychedelics were mostly politically slanted. That ha They had to do with social status. They had to do with um, demonstration movements. They had to do with protests. They had to do with the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. And today... People are taking it into the lab. People are studying exactly what's happening in the brain. And one of the things that we're beginning to see is that there's a lot of emphasis with psychedelic drugs on um, ego dissolution, on social activity, and on connectivity. People who are mm -hmm. taking these drugs are able to activate parts of their brains in a way that is atypical to common wakefulness. And we get more connectivity between areas that usually do not connect.
Uh, and if this is done judiciously, if this is done with um, uh, proper supervision, and if this is done with proper screening, in other words, we can screen people who don't have heart conditions and mental health conditions and stuff like that. And if we can do it in a monitored environment um, where we control the quality of the drugs, the dosage of the drugs, the medical history of individuals, and we can monitor them during um, the experiences and we have psychiatrists and neurologists you know, re- you know, at the ready, um, we are learning a great deal about how these drugs can help um, not just mental health, but things that are related, for example, to um, even eating disorders um, and mm-hmm. um, um, you know social uh, phobias uh, and so on and so forth. It's very interesting to notice that um, we are now at a very precarious uh, stage in our social fabric because with Corona and everything else that's going on, we are in a way awaiting um, a, a tsunami. Uh, okay, of sorts, uh, that is going to be a mental health tsunami that is going to come, um, uh, you know, uh, basically knocking on our door. Yeah. And, uh, and that seems like the that, next really big thing is certainly so much mental health is going on. I want to say that we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. We're going to take a short commercial break. And just a reminder that our host, Kathy Gardarian, has a book out called Feet to the Fire, Finding My Soul and Success, and it's something special. In this transformational memoir, Kathy shares her inspiring stories about how she found her own soul while climbing the corporate ladder. Relying on open-hearted love as her primary motivational tool, Kathy defied the traditional male business structure to become founder and CEO of her own company, Qualys International multi-million dollar sales and distribution company with clients like Home Depot and 7-Eleven. Within these pages, Kathy emboldens readers to bravely hold their own feet to the fire while giving them the tools necessary to achieve deep, meaningful change in the midst of discomfort. With humility, humor, wisdom, and warmth, Kathy offers an alternative path to prosperity using feminine principles that will empower women everywhere. As Deepak Chopra put it, Feet to the Fire is for anyone interested in true success. Using her own story as an example, Kathy offers useful, accessible tools for transformation, combining business with self-awareness. Simply visit feettothefires.com. That's feettothefires, plural, dot com. Good. Well, we're back. And I, you know, this this whole thing about using drugs you know on the brain what do you, you know there's so much talk about what you can do um you know uh, regarding aging you know there's so many baby boomers that are are interested in staying really sharp and what about alzheimer's and all of that how does that impact that yeah i mean we are living in a society where people are getting older longevity is uh, increasing Uh, we live for longer and longer and we are interested in the quality of life we're not interested in just living we want to live you know with a good quality of life and that includes keeping our cognitive faculties intact and uh, remembering things about our um, narrative history and um, about our families and what we did and stuff like that so we are all terrified of cognitive impairments and Alzheimer's mm. and so on. And that's only natural. It's human to, to, you know, to be concerned about that. One of the interesting things, and these are research directions. So Alzheimer's has been 
a big black box for us for a long, long time. A lot of money has been poured into research, brain research that and development of new drugs. And we've been largely unsuccessful. We haven't been able to come, you know, with a magic bullet, not even with half a magic bullet. Um, we've been able to get all kinds of interesting insights into the brain and what happens to the aging brain and so on. But we don't have a solution. We still don't have a solution. Recently, something interesting happened. The FDA actually approved a drug after 20 years of not approving anything that is related to uh, Alzheimer's. Suddenly, recently, there was an approval of a drug, but there's so much commotion around that approval and whether it was exactly kosher and what was the process and were there any kind of political forces around it and scientists have raised all kinds of objections and people have been fired and so on. So it's very clear that even the recent breakthrough, if you want to call it, in you know, within double quotes or quotation marks, it's not we're not quite there what psychedelic drugs are offering is a weird hope that we would be able to activate the brain or connect parts of the brain in ways that otherwise would be difficult what people are doing now more and more and this is happening under the radar it's just a social phenomena people are beginning to microdose now what is microdosing microdosing is not to be confused with tripping, with taking LSD or whatever and losing control for eight hours or going on some kind of a journey for eight hours and, and so on. It's exactly the opposite. It's taking a very, very, very low dose that hardly makes a dent in how you feel and what your perceptions are and basically taking it every three or four days and adding like a drop or a little bit to your coffee. And this kind of approach, this philosophy of microdosing, which is almost like a California special. It was uh, developed in uh, North Cal. It was the, developed by people in Silicon Valley who were sort of experimenting. And some people swear by it. And uh, we don't have a lot of science on it. It's, it's mostly anecdotal evidence. It mostly comes from accounts of people who've done it. People have written books about it. You know, there's a whole sort of underground uh, network of in, you know dark internet people who are you know talking about it but it's very interesting to see that psychedelic drugs are coming back they're coming back in very very low doses people take just a tiny bit here and there and as a result of this they feel more creative they feel more in control some people claim that they feel that this can replace their antidepressants or you know now on the one hand it's exciting on the other hand it's very dangerous because there's no science around it and we and that's why i feel that it's my responsibility as well as my mission to come in and to study these things so that we would have slightly more i would say um what's the word now here systematic ways of ascertaining and studying these things in a lab um in a, in a way that is both rigorous and uh, methodical but you know we were talking earlier about mental health which certainly you look around there's really a lot going on that's COVID has caused a lot of um, issues for people do you think that the microdosing could also help that it might i think that at the end of the day it's really a function of evidence we need to collect data and we need to see what it does we need to see what it does uh, to um, uh, young people and to older people. We need to see what it does to people who are under 
social stress and people who are under uh, stress at work. Um, yeah. You know, even stress is not a monolithic term. It comes in like different flavors and, and you know, and, and different aromas. So we need to get a better handle on what it is that we're trying to um, determine uh, that these drugs are good for at what dose to what people under what circumstances. And that's a whole, you know, it's going to take years for these things uh-huh. to come out. Uh, but there is definitely a change in the thinking, both of the scientific community and on the part of law enforcement. Definitely. Um, we have to find a way to, um, I think, solve some of the issues that are causing so many problems. And the gun violence is up. Everything. People are a little nutty today. And yeah. Yeah, and 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 the other, I mean, you you mentioned to me before, you know, when you said, um, can you identify uh, sort of the next big thing? I, yeah. I so so there's no question to me that psychedelic drugs sort of you know represent uh, maybe the new revolution in psychiatry and mental health, but I think that there's another element that represents um, a revolution that is no smaller. Um, maybe even greater, and that's the suggestion revolution. I think that we are now at a point where we're beginning to understand more and more about the science of suggestion, and particularly with corona. And when we see uh, what happens to our society with um, conspiracy theories, with fake news, with uh, vaccinations and knowledge of vaccinations, with um, you know um, groups of people who are listening to uh, speeches and as a result of that, you know, do, taking all kinds of actions, it tells you a great deal about how you can influence people, how you can uh, change their behavior, how you can instigate them and propel them into action. And these are things that scientists have been studying for years, but not on the scale that we see them today. So okay. with you know social media, with uh, things that are related to uh, the proliferation of uh, information and so on, um, suggestibility, suggestion, the science of suggestion, how to influence people and so on is becoming a big, big topic of investigation. Wow. Now, you have a book that's coming out. And so what will we, re- what will we read in your next book? It's called The Suggestible Brain. I find that so interesting title because mm-hmm. that is what you're talking about. Yeah, and this is a, a perfect uh, segue into it actually because um, the book that I'm writing right now it's probably going to be another you know year or so before it comes out because yeah. that's the that's the timeline of books uh, you probably know better than most people. But uh, the 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 idea of the suggestible brain is basically to demonstrate to individuals how what are the mechanisms in the human brain that cause us to believe certain things. And as a result of our belief, as a result of our thinking, uh, to change our physiology uh, and to change, in a way, our reality. So a lot of people don't quite understand that thinking is a tangible thing. They think of thinking as sort of a cerebral or or, ethereal or something that is so abstract that you cannot capture it. But we are now at a point, at least in neuroscience, where we can actually... Um, it's not exactly take photographs of, of, of these processes, but we can trace these processes. We can measure them, or at least an indirect image of them um, that we can capture with the technology that we have, with all kinds of imaging of the living human brain. 
And it gives us opportunities to say intelligent things or things that are a little bit intelligent about consciousness and about free will and about our ability to do things voluntarily versus not voluntarily. Yeah. I've always been taught that thoughts are things, you know. We, yeah. And, and you can create your reality by how you think. Right. And, and you know, sentences like it's all in your mind and, and, and things like that. These are, these are good sentences and there's a good, you know, there's a good amount of information to support them. But what we are beginning to see is that to say it's all in your mind is a lot more than just a cliche. You can actually break it down to um, elements of what are the brain mechanisms that allow certain people to respond to certain suggestions in a certain way. So what what makes some people more suggestible than others? And if you know that some people are more suggestible, can you help them more or can you help them in certain ways? So for example, can you identify who are going to be the people who are going to be most susceptible to, let's say, psychotherapy? Can you identify the people who would be good placebo responders? Can you identify people who would benefit more or would be prone to uh, follow religious leaders more? They're likely to be more spiritual. They're likely to be more people who are going to be um, uh, maybe uh, more critically, more critical thinkers, less critical thinkers. People are likely to have like more imaginative um, kind of thinking. People who are going to have more magical thinking. These are very important things. And just like you can identify certain features uh, like, you know, like IQ, uh, like uh, personality measures and so on. We are now at an era where we are beginning to identify suggestion, suggestibility, how people, how influenceable people are, how certain people can influence other people. Mm. And this is extremely important information when you are basically dealing with either things that you want to sell Things that you want to, you know, have people follow ideas that you want to, you know, have people follow. Don't forget, people vote, you know, and if you yes. can and if you can if you can influence people to vote a certain way, if you can influence people to spend their money a certain way or to go for certain trends, you have a lot of power. Yes. Yes. I remember the Dalai Lama once told me that you never think about what you don't want and that you put your energy into what you want to see out in the world. And that's how you create your reality. Which part of what you're saying is in alignment with that? The Dalai Lama is a very smart person. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that um, um, from a scientific perspective, uh, we are making baby steps towards um, these kinds of, you know, very deep overarching statements like the one that you just yeah. made. But one thing is for sure, you know, we are beginning to understand certain things that we didn't understand before. For example, we understand that we can change our body temperature, you know, our core body temperature with thinking, uh, by thinking certain things or by, you know, um, imagining certain things. We are beginning to understand how we can change our pain thresholds. Um, we are beginning to understand how we can even influence sugar levels, you know, for diabetic wow. people by telling them, you know, that the, the, con the sugar content of what they're eating is different from what it actually is. So if you tell them that something has a lot of sugar in it, it you know, their sugar level changes differently than if you tell them that it doesn't have a lot of sugar in it. Really? Although it's exactly mm -hmm. the same. They're, they're eating exactly the same thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, people, you know, uh, their, their feeling of how satiated they are, how full they are. 
uh, is a function of the labels that you give certain things. So if you tell them that a particular shake is indulgent versus if you tell them that, you know, it's just a regular diet shake, uh, they're going to feel less full as a result of the label that you give the shake. And these are all things that we are studying the physiology of. In other words, it's not just based on what the person is telling me. We can actually see what, you know, the hormones that are being released, the physio- the underlying physiology and how it's actually coming to be, not because the person is telling me and playing some kind of a role enactment thing. They're, this is not acting. This is not the theater. They're actually feeling it because it's actually happening. So suggestible brain. We look forward to that. So, um, well, how can people reach you? I think the best way to reach me is just to um, uh, go to the Chapman University uh, Brain Institute website. Uh, and uh, there's a portal there that allows to send me an email and they can send me a question or, you know, a request or, you know, whatever they feel like sharing. And uh, it's going to get to me. It's gonna, I might be a little bit slow to respond because I have a big volume of emails coming in, but I have some trusty assistants who are going to you know, print it out, bring it to my attention, and I'm usually pretty good at getting back to people. Good. And I always like to ask because I love quotations. So what's one of your favorite quotations and what is it, you know, why is it important to you? To me, um, and I know a lot of great quotations, um, at this point in my life, um, one of my favorite ones is um, under promise and over deliver mm-hmm. as opposed to over promise and under deliver. I think that uh, especially when I deal with young people yeah. who always uh, boast that they can, you know, bake 20 minute brownies in two minutes and, and things like that. I always tell them, you know, one good lesson for life. And certainly if you're dealing or you're going to be dealing with science or anything like that, under promise and over deliver. It's short and easy to remember. Yes, I like that a lot. That's great. I am so happy you came today and shared your wisdom with everyone. And I want you to come back again. So we have to figure that out. With pleasure, anytime. That'd be great. So thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Take care. And there you have it. Another episode of Finding Your Soul and Success, with leaders sharing their inspirational wisdom with Kathy Gardarian. For more information on her book, or to hear past episodes, simply visit the site Feet to the Fires, that's Feet to the Fires, plural, dot com. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.